Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So I'm excited to be with you this morning. We're continuing once again down that that road less traveled. And, you know, I think by the time we get to the end of this, I don't think we can call it the road less traveled because we are going to be here for quite a while. And it, it's almost like that was the point. <laughs> so we are, are coming down this road less traveled. We are once again in the, the book of Revelation. Um, as I w- was preparing for our time together this morning, uh, reading through Revelation 12, which, by the way, if you have your, your Bibles, that's where we want to turn. That's where we're going to be uh, most of the day today. Um, there is a documentary that I came across um, about the persecuted church in the Middle East. It's called The Sheep Among Wolves. And if you haven't seen it, man, I, I strongly recommend it. It's, it's on YouTube. I don't know that it's available anywhere else. So you'd have to watch it through YouTube. I, I got to tell you, it is not the let's pop a bag of popcorn and sit down with our five-year-old and watch type of thing. Um, yeah, there, there, is, there is some hard stuff that we see there. And what we see in this, this documentary, this following of the underground church, is a critical reminder about what the expected cost should be as a follower of Jesus. And I got to say, as the, as the church in the West, I don't think we know what that cost is. I don't think we can truly understand what that real cost is today. but I, I, I might say that there may be a day where we will. What an absolutely critical reminder about who the enemy of our souls is. When you see what, what the underground church is going through, you, you start to understand just how much of an enemy exists. You say, well... I don't necessarily feel like the enemy's doing too, too great. I, I feel like we're, we're winning, and are we, though? When you start looking at, at the level of persecution that's taking place in places like Iran, in places like the, the other underground churches in the Middle East, what comes to mind is, is sometimes you watch a sporting event, and you watch a sporting event where the one side is losing so badly that all thought of sportsmanship goes out the window and, and pretty soon elbows are flying. Pretty soon people are getting just, you know, chucked on the ground. Everything is out the window. There are no more rules and it's just we're going to take everybody down with us if, if we're going to go down. What I see happening in the, the church in the Middle East and in the persecuted church across the world is just that. An enemy that has already lost acting desperate to take as much of his enemy down as he can. There was an interview with with one of the the men involved in a home church in Iran who made a comment that the church of the West is under a satanic lullaby. And, you know, sometimes it's... Sometimes we, there's criticism that comes towards the church in the West, and you say, you know, I, I, don't, 
I don't understand that or I don't agree with that. Sometimes the church in the West gets, gets labeled with things that maybe aren't appropriate. But if we look at this, I think that's a pretty accurate description. I think it, it's accurate to say that, that maybe the church in the West doesn't necessarily recognize the enemy of our souls attacking us because we're asleep. We're just, we're just able to just be asleep. We're able to be comfortable. We're able to, to rest secure in the wealth that, that we have. We're able to just kind of go with it. And, and there's Satan singing his lullaby. It's okay. Just, just stay asleep. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to be involved. But this morning, I, I, I want to sound the alarm. Let's, let's wake up. This morning, we're looking out the, the third window. Remember, it, it isn't what happens next. It, it's what John sees next. And so we have the first window was the throne room where, where all worship was centered. And then the second window, we have the opening of the seals and the blowing of trumpets, the, these judgments that are taking place. And then this third window, here in this third window, we have this cosmic battle that is about to take place. In chapter 12, we have two signs and a scheme. A sign points to something else, right? A, a sign doesn't point to itself. A sign points to something else. It isn't the point, it's pointing to something. And so in chapter 12, it's, it's talking about this woman and this dragon, and it's talking about a son who's born of the woman, and the dragon's trying to, to devour the, the, the son who's born from the woman. And if you were to to kind of draw out what uh, the Bible, how the Bible describes this woman, it would look a little strange. She has the sun on her clothing. She has the moon under her feet. She has the stars on her head. She has 12 stars on her head. And what we have to remember is this is apocalyptic imagery, right? This is, this is not necessarily the, the normal way that we would describe someone. But what does apocalyptic imagery do? It, it bypasses maybe the, the things that would get in the way. It bypasses logic sometimes, and, and it cuts to the soul, and it says that this is more than, hey, this is Mary. And instead says, hey, maybe there's more to this than it just being Mary. And, and that's the case. The, the, the easiest rep, uh, interpretation of Revelation 12 is that this is absolutely Mary, the, the Mary, like Mary and Joseph Mary, that this is Mary, the Virgin Mary. But it's bigger than that. And we know it's bigger because we see all of these stars, we see the sun, we see the moon. Like, what does all of that have to do with anything? There's something else going on. Remember, there's nothing that's said in the book of Revelation that isn't said elsewhere in the Bible. And if we look at Genesis 37, Joseph has a dream. And in his dream, he dreams of a sun and a moon and 11 stars bowing down before him. If Jacob is the sun and Rachel is the moon and the 11 brothers that Joseph has are, are stars, and that means Joseph's probably a star too. So that makes 12 stars then we start looking at this woman and say, okay, this woman's Mary, but now we have all of the, the, the foundational aspects of Israel represented in this woman as well. 
So this woman represents the people of God. She represents Israel. Isaiah 66, 7 through 9 says, before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Well, how does that work? Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb? The prophet Isaiah is saying that the people of God are going to give birth to the one who will make war against a dragon. The dragon that's being talked about in Revelation 12. So this woman, she represents the people of God before and after Jesus. She represents Israel. She represents Mary. She represents the ideal church. So we have the woman who is a sign that's pointing to something. We have, now we have this dragon. Revelation 12, 9 says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. He's the color red. When you think of the color red, blood comes to mind. Killer. He's a murderer. He's violent. When you start thinking about the things that are happening to the underground church, to those who are captured, when they are are caught, the red dragon is very much apparent. He has seven heads, seven. Seven is a number that represents complete authority. And in this case, he has authority, but he has borrowed authority. He has 10 horns, and and horns are normally a symbol of strength if we we look in the Bible. 10 is, he has a lot of strength. (laughs) This verse points back to Genesis 3.15, where where there's this specific, excuse me, Genesis 3.15. There's enmity that exists between the woman and the serpent. Serpent and dragon, we can kind of link those together, right? There's, there's enmity. What does enmity mean? It means that they're, they're, they are adversaries. They're against one another. And there's this coming collision where the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike his heel. War between the dragon and the people of God is what's being talked about. One author says that one of the great themes of the Bible is the woman versus the beast. And if we look through the the, um, Old Testament, we see we have Eve versus the serpent. We have Sarah and Rebecca versus barrenness. We have Tamar versus Judah, Jochebed and Miriam versus Pharaoh, Deborah and Jael versus Sisera, Ruth and Naomi versus death. I mean, and you can just follow through the entire Old Testament these women that are, are battling against the enemy, that are battling against the strength of either humanness, human uh, man, or barrenness or attacks of the enemy towards them. And in all of these struggles, the women of faith are engaged in a battle to save the people of God. If we look at Esther, Esther has this dramatic victory over uh, Haman as he's trying to literally exterminate all of the people of Israel, all of the Jews, right? Right? 
And we see this theme continue. Satan hates you, ladies. He wants to destroy you. He wants to devour your children. And that is what is happening in this passage. In Revelation 12, that's, that's one of the, the things that we can look at this is that that beast that is before the woman that's giving birth it, is the dragon is there to devour the children. And then we have the sun. The sun is the one aspect of this that isn't a sign. The sun will rule with an iron scepter, it says. The sun is Jesus. This, this is Matthew 2, if we look at, at Matthew 2, where Mary gives birth to Jesus. And, and what happens immediately after he gives birth to Jesus? Herod sets a decree that all of the males in the region are to be killed. That is the red dragon coming to destroy, waiting to pounce, waiting to devour the sun. And isn't the sun then rescued? Just like it says in chapter 12, that Jesus is rescued. He's whisked, whisked off to, to Egypt. Revelation 12 is a much different way of looking at the Christmas story than what we're used to. I've said it before. We don't usually have the, the red dragon. We don't usually have Mary with uh, the sun and moon and stars. That's not really what we look at. But there's a reason that we look at it this way. There's a reason that this is here. John is, is taking on the task to supplement what Matthew has written so that the nativity isn't just the Hallmark card. You know, we, we see it joked about in, in cultural references where, you know, oh, we, I just like the baby Jesus. I just like to pray to baby Jesus. I just like to think of baby Jesus in the manger. Yes, baby Jesus was in the manger, but he grows up to kill the dragon. And that's what the point of retelling this story through the apocalyptic imagery of Revelation 12 is, is to say, yes, Jesus is born in a manger, but he grows up to something so much more. The birth of Jesus excites more than just wonder. It excites evil. And we don't, we don't consider that when we're celebrating Christmas, typically. We don't, we don't consider that the dragon was there waiting to devour. In this chapter, we see war between God and Satan across all time. The war behind all wars, the cosmic war. And here is the amazing news. We have already won. We are all ready the victors in this war. Six times we read, if you read through Revelation 12, you read that the dragon was thrown down. And I, this is just hilarious to me. The word thrown down in the Greek is translated to bounce. <laughs> the dragon got bounced out of heaven. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's, that's what I want to see. You just kind of picture this super long staircase and, and the dragon just kind of rolling down the staircase all the way down. Then there's rejoicing in heaven, but woe to those on earth. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast 
their testimony about Jesus. If you want to know why things are so difficult on this earth, if you want to know why there is disease, why there's death, why there's depression, anxiety, injustice, racism, and every other type of wickedness in this world, that is why. This passage tells us that we are in a war with a defeated and desperate enemy who will do all he can to destroy us. And those are the the tools of the enemy that he brings. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says that we are not to be ignorant of the schemes of the enemy so that we are not outwitted. We're supposed to know. So we have an enemy who has been bounced out of heaven, who has been set loose on earth with borrowed authority, not complete authority, to make war against the offspring of the woman. By the way, the offspring of the woman is us, in case you weren't following along. But we aren't to be ignorant. The rest of the time that we spend together this morning is going to be spent talking about the schemes of the enemy. What, what is he trying to do so that we can stop it? We want to be able to spot the schemes of the enemy so that we can turn around and punch him in the mouth. Man, that's not really church talk. We don't, we're, not, we're not supposed to talk about things. But, but it is church talk, and, and that's part of the problem. There's a war going on that we're supposed to be a part of. If you look at the church in the Middle East, they are very much aware that there is a war going on. We're too busy asleep watching Netflix. So there's three schemes. Accusation, deceit, and death. Accusation. Revelation 12, 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Accusation is the full frontal attack of the enemy. He exists to accuse you and to get you to agree with that accusation. Do you understand that in order for an accusation to have any power, you have to agree to it? If I'm just being accused and I say, no, that's not... That's not who I am. You don't get to define me. Then there is no power in that. The devil, Satan, exists to accuse and to get me to agree with that accusation. The number one tactic of the enemy is to take from you what is yours and to take you completely out of the fight. And that's what we see happening in the church in the West over and over and over and over again. He accuses you. He accuses God. He accuses others. He accuses, accuses groups. He accuses individuals. He's there to harass, to create division, to create dehumanization, to destroy. This is, this is very true. If you look back at your life and you, and you look back at an instance and let me be clear. This is not saying that you had bad parents. This isn't saying that this person that maybe inadvertently said something to you is, is all of a sudden responsible for the schemes of the devil. No. But what I am saying is if we look back at our life, most of us can find that there was something that was said at some point, some word that was spoken over us that said, yeah, you weren't man enough. You weren't pretty enough. You weren't smart enough. You weren't blank enough. Fill in the blank. That thing was said. 
And in that moment, there was a choice that we had. Do we, do we believe that? And what happens in that moment is, is if we believe that, we, we take that and, and life continues on and God's work continues to take place in our lives. But that, that thing is there. And that thing becomes a point of attack where we accept that word that was spoken over us until how many years later we, we say, yeah, but, but I'm not strong enough. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not pretty enough. I, I'm, I'm not this enough. We have somehow come to this point of, of believing that lie that was spoken over us that long ago. If the enemy accuses me and I agree with the accusation, I have removed myself from the fight. How many times have you heard somebody say, yeah, I don't know how to pray? That's baloney. That's complete nonsense. You cannot tell me that you do not know. Can, can you say, God, I don't know how to pray? If you can say that, you can pray. You, you just prayed. So, so, you have bought into the lie that says, I, I don't know how to pray. You have, have shown up and said, I agree with the accusation that I am not able to talk to God. I agree with that accusation. And so I am, of course, not going to pray. I have convinced myself that I can't. I can't read the Bible. I just don't get it. I don't understand Can you read? Pretty sure you can. You probably checked the sports scores this morning. Maybe you, you looked at the weather. Maybe you, you read that, that interesting article on foxnews.com. Maybe, maybe you were, were following along in, in Magnolia, whatever, with Chip and Joanna Gaines learning about 50 different ways to use shiplap. I don't know. But there, there has to be some effort that is applied. I'm not going to buy into the lie that says, yeah, I don't know how to read my Bible. I can't read my Bible. That, that accusation can't work. I want to know the Word of God, and so I will read the Word of God. And as I read the Word of God, I will gain understanding. I'm not going to allow the enemy to stop me from receiving what God has for me. The accusation that you can't pray or that you can't read or that you cannot preach the gospel is nonsense. And when you believe it, it takes you out of the fight and it puts you back to sleep. Shh. Pastor Matt reads the Bible. You don't need to worry about it. Pastor Matt knows how to pray. He's got that. You don't need to worry about it. It's okay. The accusations brought before us aren't true. They are part of a fight. So here is just a, a thought. What if we fight back? Open up your Bible and say, I don't get it. I don't understand what it is that's being said. Holy Spirit, help me to understand. What if we said, this is really crazy. What if we said, I need help to understand what is being said here? Fellow believer in Christ, brother or sister, will you come alongside and help me grow in what it means to be a follower of Jesus? This is called getting in the game. 
Stop believing you can't pray. Stop believing you can't read the word of God. Stop believing you can't preach the gospel. It's a lie and the primary way of killing us. If we believe that lie, we will run from the presence of God and all of the goodness of life that is found in his presence. And so we combat the the accusations of the enemy with the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Accusations don't define who I am. What the enemy says about me doesn't define who I am. What my, my parents have said about me doesn't define who I am. What my wife says about me doesn't define who I am. My kids don't define me. The Bible does. You don't even get to define who I am. How can I do what I'm doing this morning? How can I be up here saying what I'm saying if I put the power to define me in your hands? I can't. Now, if you don't like that, you can go somewhere else. (laughs) But I'm called to to praise the name of Jesus. I'm called to bless the Lord, and that's what I'm going to do. So to recap for a second, we fight accusation with the word of God. But to do that, I need to know the word of God. And for me to know the word of God, I have to come out from under the agreement that I can't know the word of God. God, I mean, God put the cookies on the the bottom shelf here. We can can come in to the, the word of God at whatever level of understanding is available to us. Whatever level of understanding we have, we can grow in that. Accusation gets its power from agreement. We have to be able to show up and say that is not true. That's not true about me. That's not true about that group of people. The reason we're hostile, the reason we're divided is that the enemy has accused other groups of people and we have agreed with it. Satan is the problem not the left wing. Satan is the problem, not that Democrat that you know. Satan is the problem, not fill in the blank of whatever conflict you have been faced with. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. What does the Bible say about us? says that, th- that this Matt Marish, with all of his regrets, with all of his struggles, with all of the mistakes that he has made and he is going to continue to make, has been fully, freely, and forever forgiven in the blood of Christ. That's what it says. Yeah, but, but Matt, you don't know about me. And that's true, I don't. But the great news is I don't need to because God's word defines ultimate reality, not the lies of the accuser. The next scheme is deceit. Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. This isn't just talking about bad information. This enemy wants you to feel that something is false. To feel that God is holding out on you. 
to feel that God will not be enough. To question whether God is good, whether he can be true to his word, whether God can be trusted. That's what the scheme is. Satan adds to, he takes away, he twists, he calls bad good, and he calls good bad. And he has had millennia of practice to deceive, to distort, and to take from us what is rightfully ours. He comes in two ways. He comes with false doctrine, believing things about God that aren't true. That's, I mean, this is simple stuff, saying, hey, that thing that's true about God, yeah, don't worry about that. That's not right. We're not called just to focus on doctrine. We're called to to focus on doctrine and back it up with action. That's, That's where Jesus was calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yes, you know the law, but you're not doing it. Correct doctrine is what makes us look towards God, not away from him. And then this next process that he goes through that that he tries to, to enact is the deconstruction of what it means to be a follower of Christ. What Maybe to use a really churchy term, we could say the deconstruction of orthodoxy. And everybody's like, well, what does orthodoxy mean? Uh, bear with me for a second. So what if Mary wasn't really a virgin? That's a common thing that's being asked right now. What if God didn't really speak about sexual sin? I don't, did, did God really say anything in the Bible about how we're not to be you know, in homosexual relationships? Did God really say that there is you know, anything bad about this whole LGBTQ you know, and so on? I don't, probably not, no. That's what deconstruction of orthodoxy is. What if blank, 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 blank? Well, a lot of terrible things, that's what. If we look at at Thomas Jefferson, he's a a deist, not a Christian. Let's be, be clear for just a moment. He took the Bible and he actually went through, and specifically the New Testament, and removed anything supernatural that existed in the, the New Testament and republished it as the Jefferson Bible. Well, I don't, I don't like this part of, of the Bible, so let's just cut that out. We don't need to worry about that. And, and let's just remove this part. And, and in doing so, all of a sudden, yeah, this, this feels a lot easier to wrap my head around. I can get behind this version of God. I, I like this. If we look at the early 1800s, slave owners in the, the West Indies, they would, would take a Bible and they created the slave Bible. And in the slave Bible, they removed very much so any reference to Exodus, you can bet. And they remove anything that calls to freedom. They're reading through the Bible and say, well, this is a dangerous part of the book. Let's not worry about that. We don't don't want this part in the Bible. And and so that's happened just in those two instances. We see that happening in history. But we can see it happening today where, where people are looking at the Bible and say, well, did God really mean that? Let's just cut that piece out. Let's just cut out the piece about the whole uh, God speaking out about homosexuality and, and incorrect sexual sin. Let's, we don't need to talk about that. 
Let's cut that part out of the Bible until we wind up with the Bible light that is now so much easier to palate, that is so much easier. Man, I can show up to my friends and show them this version of the Bible and it'll be okay. And just like that, we start deconstructing what it means to be a follower of Christ until we wind up with Christianity light because of the Bible light where we have shaped God's word, we have shaped God to fit who we are versus the other way around where I'm supposed to be shaped in the image of God. And I can guarantee you this is happening today. What, one author says this, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibilities and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You will have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or a marriage will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not some figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. If there is an issue in my life where I'm saying, man, I don't agree with what it is that the Bible's saying about this, then my goodness, I probably need to start looking at my life and say, what do I need to change to come in line with what the Bible is saying about my life? Not, well, I must be right, so let's change the Bible. It doesn't work that way. Final scheme, death. The dragon is red, the color of death, death. I can guarantee you, our first century brothers and sisters in the church, I can guarantee you that the underground church across the world probably has a much clearer identification with this part of Scripture than we do today. They probably saw it very, very similarly. Whereas the church in the West struggle is, man, it's kind of awkward loving Jesus today. It was, it's kind of awkward singing that song next to that person. It's kind of awkward that they heard me playing my Christian radio. It's kind of awkward they saw me reading my Bible. Gosh, that was kind of embarrassing. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus has disarmed the devil by taking his weapon of fear, the scheme, death, and he's turned it to gain said, hey, that thing that you were using to hold my people, that, you were, that knife you were holding to their throat, is now not only is it ineffectual, it is actually the thing that leads to greater gain for them. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And, you know, we in the West, we don't like that. We live in the West, we're supposed to live until we're 97. I mean, that, that's the goal, Right? Let's make it to the end. <laughs> and yet it's this freedom 
that makes us impervious to the attacks of the enemy. It's, it's this freedom that says, yeah, for me to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's what allows those people that are facing persecution to endure and to give up their bodies for the sake of Christ. When you can spot the accusations, when you can reject the deceit and stand on the promises of God, you can agree with the Apostle Paul and say, what then can man do to me? What harm can befall me? But if we don't even know that we have bought into the accusations, if we can't even see how we're being deceived, and we're terrified of far less than death, I just don't want people to think I'm weird. Are we really going to be effective in the days to come? Sunday morning attendance will not be enough for the fight that we are going to find ourselves in. Please hear me. I love you. I love every single person that is here this morning. Coming to church on Sunday morning is not going to be enough for the fight that you are going to find yourself in in the coming days. We need robust discipleship. We need a robust ordering of our lives around the person, the work, the beauty, and the leadership of Jesus Christ. We need to have a seriousness about spotting the accusations and the deceit of the enemy and pressing on into the work that Jesus has called us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we come this morning and, and God, I, I make a commitment this morning, God, I want to wake up. I want to be effective in the fight. And, and that doesn't mean just showing up. God, I want to, I want to throw punches. I want to, to be involved in this battle. God, I want Wood Street Chapel to be involved in this battle. I, we have an open invitation at this point to come forward and to participate and to join in the work that you are doing. God, I want to see your kingdom come. Lord, we are, are, are choosing to, to set aside the, the distractions of the enemy. We are rejecting the accusations of the enemy. I am no longer agreeing to what it is that, that the enemy says about who I am, about what he says about who others are. God, I am taking you as the truth and the, the one who declares my identity. So God, as we move from this place, this is just the start. As we move from this place into Monday morning, as we move into the rest of our week, as we move into our workplaces and interactions with our families and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and everything else that, that makes up our life, God, we want to see your kingdom come in those places. Not just at Wood Street Chapel, but in those places. We want to see your spirit move amongst those people. We want to see the, the Holy Spirit drawing those people to you. God, we want to be a part of it. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 